0: With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson.
1: Hi, mining community, and welcome to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today, I've got another guest appearing uh, for the second time, Um, and I was keen to have a podcast uh, around rare earths which I think is an important subject in today's market. Um, someone I want to welcome back is Rocky Smith, who's the CEO of Peak Resources. How are you doing, Rocky?
2: I'm great. Thanks for having me again, Rob.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Thanks for agreeing to uh, come on the podcast again. Um, I know you were keen to give the audience a deeper insight to rare, the rare earth space um, and especially as a predominant or prominent topic in the news lately. Um, so first of all, I just want to kick off um, with an update on Pig Resources, what you've been doing um, since you last, um, since we last spoke, which is probably three or four months ago. Um, and actually looking at the podcast, going, looking back at that podcast, um, you're actually the podcast that was probably most listened to so um that was really that's why I was really keen to uh keen to get you back on and I think it like I said it's an important subject rare earth so can you give us an update on pig resources and what what you're obviously where you where you are from now from where you were three months ago and um, obviously what the outlook is looking like
2: yeah well thanks again uh <clears throat> one of the reasons I think that uh uh, the rare earths were so interested, it was the transition timing uh, that was going on with uh, US and China, and that was causing some agitation. And so uh, you know, that was one of the re- reasons why I think the, the popularity behind what was going on with rare earths, we saw a little peak in pricing, and uh, some of that was quite, quite uh, timely as far as our, our last podcast. Um, Those things uh, haven't changed a lot, but let me talk first about PEAK uh, and kind of what we've been doing. One of the things that's happened with us uh, just recently is that uh, the project level ownership uh, uh, for the Nguala project uh, has been uh, rolled up so that PEAK is 100% owner instead of 75% owner. Uh, That's pending the shareholder approval that's coming up. Uh, but uh, that's quite a good thing for us. It gives us a lot more uh, control on where we go, gives us some financial options down the road as well. Uh, We just did a raise of about uh, 4.8 million uh, Aussie uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, uh, this done quite a lot of work in the last three months on offtake and finance activities uh, kind of around the world, a lot of focus in Japan and Europe uh, for us. Uh, one of the things that's going to come out of our raise is that uh, our last bit of our Appian loan is going to get paid off. So we'll be debt free, which is a good thing for us. And then, yes, certainly. Uh, go ahead.
1: No, no, I was going to say, certainly, then it's always good to obviously be debt free. Um, and yeah. it's good that you've uh, obviously raised additional capital as well to uh, move the project forward.
2: Yeah. Well, the, uh, the uh, money that we'll have left over will give us plenty of uh, time to uh, continue the activities we have going. Uh, one last mention for us is the uh, <clears throat> special mining license, the SML. Uh, it's been approved through the commission in the, in the Minister of Minerals. It's still pending the Tanzanian cabinet approval, um, and we're anticipating that that could happen at any point.
1: Okay. All right. So I just want to now kick on with uh, the rest of the podcast um, and obviously talk around uh, rare earths. First question um, what the obviously more current with the, obviously the news that's obviously ongoing at the moment, what the effects of the sort of recent trade war between the US and China on rare earths producers and, and consumers, what effects would you see this uh, having on the uh, the industry or the the rare earth space
2: yeah i think a couple of things i think have happened that have been uh, um kind of a direct impact we've got some producers in the united states selling into china that are having some substantial uh effects from the tariffs the chinese tariffs on their material going in but i think you know the whether china is um you know, they made the threat that they were going to withhold rare from the United States and as a part of the trade war, because they had, um, uh, less opportunities to impose tariffs on the U S than the U S had on them. And so that when they said that, uh, you know, whether they really have the capacity to, to do much there or, or not, or, or, uh, the one thing it did point out to everybody that's um, you know outside of China, whether you're in the U.S. or whether you're another country outside of China, you know we've allowed and even supported at times Chinese uh, plan, government plan, uh, as a res- uh, to control the rare earths. Now they they have eighty uh, percent control of the rare earth market today, and uh, as a result of that. They've also taken on a, the subsequent uh, industries downstream, uh, the magnet manufacturing and even the motor making and things like that. So they've they've built this uh, supply chain, and uh, and it's really been based uh, around the fact that they had 80 percent of the uh, rare earths. I think it kind of sh- uh, sheds a light on that. What role everybody else had in China getting to this point and the fact that we were willing, most of the G7 countries, were willing to uh, take the value they were getting from the low-cost Chinese rare earths and at the same time let some manufacturing, i.e. magnet manufacturing, move from different parts of the world and be focused back into China Um, These types of activities have now given the Chinese a very strong position. Now we're talking, we hear a lot of talk about changing some of that, moving some of that technology back out of China. And I think that's probably a right decision. But I do think it's going to be one of those things that's not going to be easy to do, even though a lot of this technology may have come from outside of China. And it's going to take, it's going to take some time. It's not going to happen very quickly.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, you mentioned obviously China has um, obviously a percentage of the rare earths. Where is the rest of the the rare earth supply, or where can mainly, or what countries can mainly you find rare earth material?
2: Well, I think the the of course the largest outside of um, China production is uh, Linus, which starts in uh, in Australia and then moves to Malaysia where it's processed. Uh, uh, Linus is actually starting to take a look at doing uh, more processing in Australia and and uh, uh, they'll still do their, their finished processing in Malaysia, I understand. Yeah. But uh, that, that's going to be a bit of time for that to get done. Uh, aside from that, yeah, you have a bit in Vietnam, there's some in Estonia, there's um, a little bit in the United States. With, uh, mountain pass coming back online and producing a concentrate and shipping it back into China um, there isn't uh, there's a little bit in Myanmar. Um I, I, I uh, beyond beyond those places a little bit maybe in India but they're very small most of them are very small uh, and so that's that's pretty much all that all that we're uh, that's currently available out there
1: right okay so there certainly is not many areas that obviously are producing rare rare earth material, um, and obviously there seems to be a lot of opportunity for um, for obviously companies specialising in that space to to go out and grab some market share.
2: Yeah, I think there were um, the last time we had uh, high pricing in rare earths. There were two hundred projects that were kind of. Uh, came out of the woodwork. Obviously, the lion's share of those are not probably viable, but does tell us that there are a lot of rare earths worldwide. I think uh, the uh, Chinese have about, you know, maybe just below 50% of the total resource. Uh, so there's resources out there that are available that could be put into play. I think the problem like for most of these resources is uh, first of all do they have a viable uh, capacity to do it with the economics yeah. and and then uh, beyond that do they have the technical wherewithal to do it as well.
1: Yeah. Um, President uh, Trump ordered the Department of Defense to develop and purchase co- equipment um, to boost output of the magnets. For use by the US military. Um, what effect does this have on the current and the potential future of rare earth producers?
2: Well I think it's good news. Um, we, uh, it, it is a the potential for adding ma- uh, magnet production back into the United States uh, means that countries that are outside of China can Uh, if they can get their projects going and get them up they would have a good opportunity to sell their material into these magnet producers. Um, I think it's really incumbent on the U.S. and the other uh, G7 countries to think about how they could make financially support these in the incoming producers. Uh, You know and, uh, and one of the things that I know from my past with uh, Mountain Pass is that it's not always that easy to get money of any kind of uh, quantity. Uh, but I think one of the things that would be very helpful is if there were uh long loan guarantees and things of that nature where the, the projects themselves could still pay the bill if they could just get the uh, financial support to get that started. And I think the other thing is, you know, a lot of people are talking about one project or another project, and I think uh, it's really important that we work on a, lot, uh, a number of things at the same time, because um, you don't want to get uh, uh, too focused on one thing. I think if you do that, you have a tendency to uh, be uh, susceptible to failure, uh, much like we saw uh, with uh, mountain pass and, and even with Linus for a bit of time. Uh, but I think if we can, you know, uh, work to uh, start a number of these things and uh, focus on them, I think it'll uh, ultimately, it'll pay dividends. And we have to remember going forward that there's 2,000 metric tons of NDPR going to be needed a supplemental uh, addition every single year going forward to 2040. So there's plenty of room yeah. uh, out there for uh, all of the producers that could get online.
1: Yeah, what are the the prices of some of these uh, rare earth commodities in the market at the moment, and how they how are they doing?
2: Um, the prices haven't been particularly uh, great uh, uh, recently. I think we saw some increasing prices um, when uh, China was uh, rattling the saber and, uh, with the United States. We saw some pricing increases there. But <clears throat> the, honestly, the thing that'll drive pricing is when the EV thematic actually gets going in a pretty, in a pretty good clip. And at, at this point in time, it's still just a little bit early yeah. in that process. So you haven't seen the, su- the uh, consumption really press the supply very hard yet. And so without that, uh, pricing has been uh, w- relatively flat from – uh, forty-five to fifty dollars, and that's
1: not really high enough
2: to uh, to get these projects to get, to move in a forward direction.
1: Yeah, I understand. And like you said, supply and demand. There's obviously a uh, demand issue that will arise, um, and hence why obviously those prices will will start to rise. Uh, once the demand, the actual demand starts to uh, starts to increase because there is obviously limited supply, or it seems there's limited supply at the moment. Yeah, we think that about
2: 2021, the the uh, demand piece will actually equal to or exceed the supply piece of the exi- existing manufacturing, um, and then going forward, the gap gets quite a bit bigger. And so that's one of the reasons why it's important that uh, new suppliers are starting to come on, uh, be uh, pushed forward because I think it takes anywhere from uh, five to ten years to get one of these things up and running. And I think you know we have an opportunity to maybe go a little bit quicker because we've done a lot of the work up front already. But even at that, we're still looking at three to four years to get our to get our facility up and running. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, that's, I, I don't know, uh, you know, really price wise, the NDPR is the only thing that uh, uh, has really been driving this thing. I know DY and TV pricing has moved around a little bit, but uh, um, you know, I think um, it hasn't really gotten, it'll go up for a period of time and then back down. And I see the rare stock prices, they fall, they, they went up, and now they've all started to come back down again. So what we need to have happen is the uh, EV uh, production start to push a little harder. And then we'll see um, in, increased metal pricing.
1: Yeah. What uh, Going on back to LC peak uh, resources, what are the main reasons why you decided to uh, produce separated rare earths? Um, and what's the biggest advantage you get from sitting... Um, your finery at uh, Tees valley in the uk
2: well i think the number one reason uh to do it was the value to the shareholders is maximized when you separate these uh, elements to the finished product i think shipping a concentrate to the refiner and uh, makes you reliant on that outside refiner and whether you're doing toll trading or whether you're just selling it to them uh, there is a, a certain, They're going to set the value of the concentrate to some, to some extent. When that refiner starts to fill up, as I say, 2021, capacity is going to get tight. As they start to fill up, they're going to pick and choose the stuff that they want to have in their refinery. And so you're going to see them uh, getting the best value they can because they'll be uh, a, a, a needed commodity. And so you might see some lower returns for the people that are selling concentrates. You know, it's simply toll treating or selling the concentrate doesn't give the, the best value uh, for the metals. There's an example of that recently where one of the Chinese refiners really kind of took a Wrong turn with respect to one of the concentrate suppliers for heavy rare earths from outside of China, and basically that that uh, supplier had to go look for another uh, another uh, refining company to do the business. Uh, that's something that I think we'll see more of uh, as we go forward.
1: Yeah. Um- What's the biggest barrier to new operators for building and operating a, a rare earth refinery? Um, I mean, what what's your current kind of thinking around the time of for getting Teesside into operation?
2: Okay, well, the biggest barrier, in my opinion, is uh, you know if you have the a viable operation, assuming you have a viable operation or a viable reserve, uh, the biggest issue then becomes. Uh, attracting finance um, and the reason that that's an issue you know it, it's different for for everybody this is the one thing about rares that's a little bit different than other types of process um, processing is that these uh, different deposits are different are, are different sets of minerals so they have different processes that are uh, required uh, and that makes them either harder or easier depending on what element you're in. So, things like, uh, you know, the capital required, that's a, that's one of the things that's uh, pretty significant here. Technical risk is another. Uh, country risk is one that we're dealing with. Um, operating experience, if you have, how good of a group you have with that or how good you can, good a group you can put together. Um, the economics you know, a lot of our, a lot of it depends at the, at the end of the day, operating costs are very important so that you're in a spot where you can't be pushed out of this thing. So you've got to make sure that your economics are really, uh, in the right place. And then, uh, the last thing I say, and and this is one of those, the price of the metal, the metal one, this, price of this metal gets into the mid 70s or above, then I think, you know, there'll be a lot more opportunities here for finance. Until it does, I think it's gonna be difficult to get a lot of finance. And I just think people are gonna have, you're gonna to have to have a very special project to get, uh, you know, uh, financing in, in today's world. The other things out there, you know, it's time to market, product quality uh, you know customer base the people that cannot that understand what the marketplace looks like um, I think those are the people that are going to be uh, most successful but those are barriers that uh, require um, some level of expertise
1: yeah you mentioned obviously uh, capital um, expense in to start a uh, rare earth refinery up. How's that compared to other uh, sort of refineries, whether it's whether it's coal, whether it's gold, whether it's copper, et cetera? Is, is it a lot more expensive to set up a refinery? A is it more complex, like the processing plant, for instance, uh, than other commodities?
2: Yeah, I think, <clears throat> you know, a lot of these things depend upon the, the size of the plant itself. But for the most part, given the size of the, these plants, they are more complex and more costly. Uh, a lot of the again sort of back to the same thing I said before depends on your process if you have a process that has a very difficult mineral to extract from or if you have a process that's never been extracted from uh, you know I think you're technically you are uh, you you have some risk so you've got to be careful when you're putting your capex together um, those things though, uh, they don't have to be, in all cases, don't have to be extremely uh, exotic. In the case like ours, and maybe some of the things around some of the heavy uh, re- recoveries, you can work with more uh, gen- generic type equipment without really having to have this exotic and expensive equipment. So yeah. in some cases like ours, we can get a pretty good sized plant with uh, separation, for a pretty low price compared to other operations where you've got a lot of different metals that you're going to be looking at, or or you've got a lot of different uh, new technologies that you're going to be looking at, and so your costs kind of creep up. Yeah. Uh, it 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 really does. It's really uh, process dependent.
1: Yeah, I understand. Yeah, and and obviously um, you're kind of thinking around the time of forgetting your. Um, T-side into operation. What are your thoughts around that?
2: Yeah, we think uh, t- you know the financing piece is 12 to 18 months. Uh, we think the construction piece is uh, going to be 18 months, and the startup and qualification of product is somewhere around six to 12 months. So that puts us in about a three to four year time frame uh, to get to product. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that go that fall in there that have to be done as well. Uh, The, uh, we've got a bit of engineering that has to be done, uh, before we can start construction and we have some operations readiness that'll take uh, as much as two years that'll have to be done before we can get into startup. So a lot of activities on the interim while you're, while you're uh, trying to get to these, uh, critical issues down the road. Again, I'd say that in a lot of most cases where people are still doing, uh, Uh, feasibility studies and piloting you know they could be looking at uh, up to five years maybe even more depending on how far down how much separation they have if they're just strictly a flotation process might be less Uh, but uh, if you're going to do any kind of separations then it's going to take a bit more time
1: yes certainly okay concluding um, what do you see as the longer um, range of opportunities for peat resources in the rare earths market um, and any other opportunities that you may be looking at? One
2: of the things that I really like about Teesside is the fact that it's got a lot of really positive attributes. Uh, you're thinking about the site itself, you think about the the location uh, and the people that are in the area, so I think we we're really focused on not just what we're going to get done with phase one but What's to come down the road? You know, one of the things that we're talking about right now is multiple feed sources uh, to supplement the Naguala concentrate uh, to T site. So we're talking about uh, what other opportunities we might have there. Uh, In time, we're going to be looking at an increase in production on our NDPR from 2,810 up to 6,000 metric tons. We don't see that as being a large issue for ourselves because we've set ourselves up with the design of these plants so that they could be be, uh, doubled in size without a significant amount of capital output. Um, We've also designed uh, or have a a design for a permanent magnet recycle circuit, which we think will be very useful down the road. When magnets start to uh, lose their uh, capacity to, to uh, operate, then they're going to need to do, have a place where they can bring those in and process them, reprocess them and bring them back to the metal form. We're, we're, we've got a process that will tie nicely to our current process and uh, obviously we don't have all the engineering design done on that yet, but we do have a lot of the metallurgical design done on that. Um, another thing that we're hopeful for, we, we bought more land than we needed. Uh, and whether we get the chance to use that for our expansion or whether we can find other industries tied to the supply chain, i.e. metal conversion or magnets, uh, we'd love to do that. Uh, We hope that we can JV with the current magnet producer and, you know, help complete the supply chain in the U.S., U.K., or the E.U., uh, and uh, for permanent magnet uh, production. And so uh, all of these things are uh, will be incremental to what we've uh, put in our project uh, at site.
1: Yeah, no, it looks very interesting, uh, interesting future for, for you guys. And uh, obviously lot lots of opportunity and there's a lot of room within the, the rare earth uh, space. So um, yeah, really good, uh, good luck to you. Um, Really appreciate the time, Rocky, for giving us a little, uh, more of an insight to uh, the current rare earths market. Um, I mean, I've got a lot of content from that, and hopefully, uh, hopefully, our listeners have uh, got got a lot more understanding of uh, of obviously this particular sector. Um, if our audience uh, wants to obviously um, get some more information around rare earths, how can they go about doing that?
2: Well, if you go uh, onto the web. Uh, look up peakresources.com.au, uh, uh, you will see um, any of our recent uh, uh, presentations. You'll also see uh, a number of uh, 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 white pages and, uh, which describe the rare earth business and uh, some new stuff that's going on with marketing and sales. Uh, we'd encourage uh, anybody that's interested in understanding more about rare earths, the EV thematic, or peak resources to, to, to join us at peakresources.com.au. Um, so, thanks for uh, having us. Rob, really appreciate your time and uh, giving us a forum to talk about peak resources
1: yeah no worries i appreciate that and again if our audience if you've got any questions that you want me to forward on to rocky and again at the usual address which is rob at mining-international.org thank you again for listening hope you enjoyed the podcast until next time happy mining
0: thanks for listening to dig deep the mining podcast If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org. Or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining!